Hi friends, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and this is Love is Stronger Than Fear, a podcast about pursuing hope and healing in the midst of social division. In this season of the podcast, we're talking about my book, White Picket Fences, and today's episode takes a look at the themes of chapter nine. It's called Looking Up. I'm talking with my guest, Todd Billings. I'm going to let Todd introduce himself to you in just a minute, but for those of you who haven't read White Picket Fences, which I'm going to say I'm really excited to announce came out two years ago on October 2nd, 2018. For those of you who haven't read it or who haven't read it in a while, chapter nine is about how our experiences of hardship can connect us to our own humanity and to the humanity of others. And in this interview, Todd actually makes that a little more complicated for me in a good way, because he talks about how our experiences of suffering and hardship on a daily level can lead us to compassion and connection. But he also talks about how a number of studies have shown that traumatic and violent experiences of death and of suffering can also lead to the opposite, can lead to withdrawing into our safe and homogenous tribes. I point this out. There are lots of things we talk about in this interview, but I point this out right now because in American life, in American politics right now, I think we're in danger of withdrawing into our homogenous tribes. But I also think we have an opportunity to take the risk to love people outside of those tribes. So I'm hopeful that this podcast and that our conversation today points us in the direction of love. My guest today is Todd Billings. Todd is a professor of theology at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. And he's also the author of a newly released book, which I highly recommend. It's called The End of the Christian Life. How Embracing Our Mortality Frees Us to Truly Live. Uh, Todd, I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for joining us. It's great to have a conversation with you, AJ. Well, so as this title of your book suggests, uh, The End of the Christian Life, our topic today might seem grim to some people. So it would be honest to say that we're here today to talk about mortality and death and dying, and your book covers all of those topics. But I've read your book. And I would say that we are also here to talk about life and about human flourishing and about hope. And I'd like to cover all of those topics and actually talk about how they relate to each other and how they're, in fact, I think you're arguing integrally connected to one another. And I also want to relate all of this to the themes of this podcast when it comes to social divisions and what it means to participate in some of the healing of our communities and our nation. Uh, But before we get to all of that, I would love to give our listeners just a sense of who you are and what your story is. So could you walk us through what what you would say your story is in terms of how you came to write this book at this time? Yeah, thanks, AJ. I think that there's two stories kind of coming together. One of them is I'm a cancer patient. I was diagnosed with an incurable cancer in 2012 married with two young kids um, in my late 30s. And I was, I became a member of the cancer community, kind Mm -hmm. of like an anthropologist becomes a participant observer in a culture, um, except for I became like a real member (laughs) of of that tribe. Involuntarily Um, also. Right, right. But I also, I'm, I am really a nerd, and so wherever I go and whatever culture I go into, and I've been immersed in a couple of cultures in East Africa for a few years and Mm. things, I'm always 
observing as well as, you know, reading. And so I've, I discovered that the cancer community was in my current location in Michigan before I really knew about it and mm-hmm. I just hadn't seen it. But here's a community that death plays a really big part. Um, and the reality of death, whether you are six years old or 86 years old, mm-hmm. is just very real. And so you make friends, um, you provide each other support, and then on, in unexpected ways, yeah, it doesn't matter if the person is six or 86. Sometimes you see the person live for five or 10 years, and sometimes the person doesn't make it through one yeah. year. And so um, the other aspect of this was as a seminary professor, I would ask students who had entered into pastoral ministry what some of their biggest challenges were. And again and again, they talked about death and dying. Um, Mm -hmm. And so a number of these students were in their late 20s when they started. They had maybe attended, you know, one or two funerals in their life. Suddenly they are advising family members about how to approach the end of life. They are presiding at 10 to 12 funerals each Mm. year. Um, It's such a big part of congregational life that because of the way in which our culture is so divided according to age group and ability and so forth, they hadn't been exposed to it. Right. And so when I, when I, I had a number of colloquies with, some of my former students as pastors. And once we started to dig under the surface, we found that the problem wasn't just about end of life. Mm -hmm. It was about the story that people in the church were absorbing. Mm. The story of discipleship and the gospel didn't have a meaningful place for death. And so that's really the approach that I take in the end of the Christian life, where whether you are young or old, whether you are a parent or a child with, you know, an aging parent, all of us, our mortality matters for all of us and how we relate and connect to one another. And the Bible has a lot to say that's actually very surprising and Mm -hmm. life-giving around these things. But because death isn't even on the radar screen for how many of us are discipled in the Christian faith, I think we miss out on this aspect of discipleship. Yeah, I'd love to actually ask you a little bit more about that because I think there are two ways that are, well, there are two aspects to our culture, right? There's like how our secular culture handles death and mortality, which is different from the past. And then there's also how our Christian culture handles death and mortality that's different from the past. Um, So I'd love for you to just, if you could just sketch out what that, how that has affected our culture? Like what, how did we used to handle it, whether that's in secular terms or in Christian terms? And what is the common practice and picture now? You've alluded to it a little bit, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah. Our culture overall has undergone what some social scientists call the great health transition, where Mm. the biggest change is actually not in like cancer treatments or specialized treatments, but in public health. And so people are living longer, you know, much longer than 100 years ago. Um, But then connected with this, even into the middle of the 20th century, um, most deaths took place in the home in America and in most 
you know, Western countries. And so most children would have had the experience of being basically a hospice worker mm-hmm. or a grandparent or a parent. The death of children was much more common. Right. And so it's actually the ordinary everyday experiences of death that we have become isolated from. Mm. It, it may seem really counterintuitive to listeners to think that death is something to, you know, one of the claims I make in the book is that we live in a death-denying culture and mm-hmm. often a death-denying Christian culture. Mm-hmm. That may seem really counterintuitive to people. It's like, well, death is all over the headlines. And, you know, what great movie plot doesn't have death in it? Sure. But in many ways, that just reinforces the point. <laughs> it's the everyday experience of death mm-hmm. that we have isolated ourselves from. And so after I was diagnosed with cancer, for example, we, I started to see a counselor to help with our kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, how do we, I'm very likely to die before they graduate from high school. Mm. How does that affect my parenting now? And one of the suggestions that the counselor had, which was quite wise, I think, is, you know, use every opportunity you have to expose them to death. So, mm. so like with the death of a pet, we, rather than just saying, you know, your dog's not here anymore, or I have a lot of friends that had stories like that from, from childhood. We had a little memorial service when our yep. dog died and we have them pet our, our dog on the living room floor and buried the dog in the backyard. And there was a lot of weeping and wailing, but there was also just for weeks and weeks, many, many questions about death that they got to ask. Right. I should mention here, my um, mother-in-law in 2003, so a long time ago, was diagnosed with primary liver cancer. And I ended up with my husband being her primary caregiver. She was only alive for six months. And it was, I mean, I resonated so much with so many of the experiences you describe in your book, both in terms of this community of people that I didn't know existed, who are all in some ways going about their regular lives, but they're also getting treatment and their bodies have become much more noticeable to themselves even than Mm -hmm. um, ever before. Um, And I was actually, we were with her in her her home when she died, um, Mm. which was both a grueling heart. I mean, the most kind of hard physical experience I've ever witnessed and participated in, but also really beautiful and very final in a helpful way, actually. Mm -hmm. So there was, anyway, I was thinking about all of that as I was reading your book and also about noticing at that time the cemeteries that are no longer in churchyards. And certainly some of that has to do with space, like, and urban planning. And, but some of it has to do with let's not see those tombstones anymore. Yeah. We're going to sequester it out. Yeah. Yeah. And like even just hair dye and wrinkle cream, but like, Mm -hmm. let's pretend this isn't going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just really saw that in a way I hadn't before, but I also saw my mother-in-law say, I know I'm going to die. And as a result of that, I have some work to do. Like I need to figure out where I'm going. Like I want to understand what the Bible has to say about heaven. Um, I need to deal with the people who I have unfinished business with. Right. I need to forgive some people. I need to ask for some forgiveness. So it was this 
condensed experience of what you described and certainly different in many ways. But I was aware, as you said, of that death denying culture. Well, so all right, I want to ask two more questions on this. So one is, how do you see that? We certainly see that easily, I think, in our secular culture. I just gave those two examples of like cemeteries and, you know, hair Mm -hmm. dye. But like, what, what about Christian culture? Like, where do we see this within the church itself? Um, what have we replaced an understanding of our mortality with? Yeah. Well, two things immediately come to mind. One is, I think a tremendous gift of the church is that it's one of the few places in our cultural moment where young children and middle-aged people and dying older people can come together and be part of a community. Yeah. It wasn't until I was diagnosed with cancer that I would sometimes bring my kids to the seminary and it's really fun to be there. But I noticed like there's nobody dying there. Like mm-hmm. all of us are dying, of course, but right. all sorts of gatherings of people uh, inintentionally or unintentionally exclude those who are dying. Mm-hmm. And so, and so it's an opportunity for the church, um, but it, it's also often a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that that we did was we went to an elder who works with care ministry in our church and just asked who are some homebound people who don't have family in the area that we could visit. And I really wanted my Mm -hmm. kids to, to know them and Mm -hmm. to know some dying people. And so we became really good friends and with a number of those. And then, but it's just odd because when I would, you know, after one of them died, I take my daughter out of school to go to a funeral and people are kind of like, you're, you're what? Right. And we, we were actually with him in his, yeah, we were the last people with him hmm. where he was actually speaking um, yeah. a few hours before he died. Hmm. And so it's an opportunity, but then there's also the um, fact that on the one hand, many churches are becoming more and more homogeneous units in terms of their generations. Mm-hmm. So I remember chatting with one of my students who was in a church plant and, you know, he said, yeah, I've been pastor there for five years and I've never had a single fun- funeral. Wow. And so I just asked, well, what age are the people? And, you know, there's nobody over 40. So, so it's a similar thing where we lose the gifts mm. of the body of Christ mm-hmm. when we have just an all-white church. We also lose the gifts of the body of Christ when we have an all-young church or when we don't have dying people in our midst. Yeah, and then the other the other challenge is just that um, because of how we institutionalize the dying for some good reasons at, at times, but right. it's there are so many in our congregations who can't join the community and worship, and on on Sunday morning, so it makes mm-hmm. it all the harder yeah. to receive not just to minister to them but to receive benefit from them. I mean, right. they have so much to offer. They are not just ill people. They are ministers of the gospel. And I could tell story after story of those who we were visiting in nursing homes who were just amazing. Well, you tell some of those stories in the book, and it's really beautiful. And I love the relationship that your children have with some of these elderly people. And it did, we actually go to this little country church where there is 
I mean, there are actually probably more people over the age of 60 than under. And I think that is such a gift to our children that mm. they really mm -hmm. know these older people and um, are connected to them in a pretty intimate way. Um, but it, I do think that's a loss that many um, churches and communities have you know, sustained in the course of you know, the uh, what did you call it? The some health uh, homogeneous unit principle was okay. <laughs> the um, it was the big church planting pr principle for many decades in church okay. circles from because <laughs> human beings like homogeneity, even yeah, if it exactly. actually were... is not God's vision of yeah, like how exactly. we can flourish. Yeah, um, well, so let's talk about that for a minute because one of the things that you do bring up in your book and that obviously is of interest to me is the thought of having privilege. Um, you write about being, you know, a white, educated, Protestant American man, which has, by social situation, isolated you from some degree of experiencing suffering and contemplating mortality. And even in the midst of cancer, you're aware that all of those things are still, quote unquote, helping you in some ways that someone else with the same experience actually doesn't have the same advantages. At the same time, you talk about this experience of Sheol. Uh, am I pronouncing that correctly, Sheol? Yeah, it's my wife is an Old Testament scholar, yeah. and she pretty much says, yeah, anything like that. I, okay. I ask her the same Something question. Something like that will work. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to explain what Sheol is and also talk about how that, I love the way your chapter on Sheol um, describes that experience and how this connects to this daily, the ordinary experience of suffering, of life in the pit, um, especially for countless people who are experiencing either uh, kind of physical suffering and, you know, knowledge of death impending or injustice and oppression. I mean, I think there's a continuum of suffering that um, might be physical in nature or it might be uh, in some other way happening up to us. So I'd love for you to just talk about Sheol a bit. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things that once I got diving into the book and some of the biblical literature about resurrection hope, um, I found that it was just different than what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. um, Sheol is a Hebrew word that's used and sometimes in the Old Testament just to talk in a generic way about the place where the dead go. Mm -hmm. And this is how it was used by surrounding cultures to the Hebrew people. So it would have been a well-known, you know, concept, sort of the okay. underworld. But even in, in various parts of the Old Testament, you also have a different sense of Sheol used where there are living, biologically living people right. in Sheol. Mm. I mean, the image for Sheol is literally a pit. Um, uh, sometimes it's translated the miry pit, a muddy right. pit. And so when the psalmist cries out from Sheol and says, I am in Sheol, that's a place where they are saying, where the concept of Sheol is not just biological life or death, right. but it's actually correlated with the temple as the dwelling place of God as an opposite. So, you know, Psalm 27, you are crying out from the pit and you, mm. um, the psalmist wants to dwell in the house of God, yeah. the temple of God. In um, Jonah, which is one of my favorite examples of this, Jonah talks about the belly of the fish as Sheol, and then 
he cries out not just to be delivered from the belly of the fish, but to go to the temple. Mm. Obviously, the psalmist is still alive when they're saying this. Jonah is still alive when they're saying this. But I think the underlying point is that for the Old Testament imagination, there's something more important than even biological life and death. What's even more fundamental is God and the presence of God is life. (laughs) And alienation from God is Is death. death. And so I think there's all sorts of ways in which we live and can live in Sheol, in this place of alienation from God um, while we are living. And when I use that term alienation from God, I'm not just talking about non-Christians. I'm talking about living in places where we feel, where we really sense, um, like Jesus did on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where it feels like this God-forsaken place. And I found that certainly as a cancer patient, I was brought into this place Mm -hmm. and learned to lament in, in new ways and the, just the gift of biblical lament. But I also found that there were others there lamenting mm. um, who were there for the different reasons. Um, I remember one of my students who I had read this manuscript and that chapter on Sheol, he said, you know, Sheol was my neighborhood mm. growing up in a rough urban part, uh, city in California. You know, I was shot many times, um, mm. had many of his friends die from gang violence before he was 20. Wow. Like, I know this place. Yeah. And so, so there's, there's two just amazing, wonderful things ab- about w- how Scripture speaks into this. One of them is that even though there's this very dark, shadowed portrait of, of Sheol, there's a sense in which this place, which seems like the very absence of God is also in a mysterious way where God is present. Hmm. I mean, we, there's moments of there, uh, of that in the Psalms, you know, even in the depths of Sheol, I'm there. Um, and then I think we see this most clearly in the lament of Jesus right. on, on the cross that he pioneers Sheol <laughs> so that it's, we're not alone there. Yet we still need deliverance, and we cry out for deliverance there. But we're not we're not alone um, in Sheol. Now, when I unpack some of these themes, it's interesting how people hear them. I remember AJ after I wrote a book about lament shortly mm-hmm. after I was diagnosed with cancer. Someone coming up to me and saying, "Todd, this is so such a valuable book. This must be why God gave you cancer." <laughs> And so it's a deeply biblical theme to say that God's power is manifest Mm -hmm. through weakness and that God can be present in Christ, even in these dark places. But that's not a very good way to describe, to frame it in the sense of, you know, can God be present to my student growing up in right. gang territory in this city in California? Well, absolutely. Yeah. But what God is doing is being his, his presence in Christ is to be the God of life there. 
And so it's, it's a little bit like when I was in Uganda doing community development work, I found that the original missionaries there had been in this remote area, had spread the gospel and the people were really grateful, but they had really centered in on, on the idea of blessed are the poor. And the thing is, is that it was basically blessed are the poor, which, you know, the missionaries were not poor, but the people were told they were poor. So you're blessed in this situation. Hmm. But this is where there was about 50% infant mortality. And, you know, by the time I arrived, they were saying, you know, that was almost like a kind of curse. <laughs> so mm-hmm. you have to be really careful in how you hold this together. Is God on the side of the poor and the oppressed in a special way? Absolutely. But it's also not helpful <laughs> to set it up in certain angles in terms of providence. Yeah, and that's, no, I'm, I'm so glad you bring all of this up and you're pushing my mind in lots of different directions because I think about, I actually have an essay coming out um, soon about the difference between the idea that God is love and God is in control. And not to say that God's not sovereign or that God doesn't work all things for good or that there's not a true providential hand in all that happens. And yet at the same time, to submit ourselves to the workings of love that is uncontrolling and that does allow injustice and oppression, even while saying, I'm on the side of the ones who are being oppressed and who are in that pit. I'm with them in that pit, even, even as I'm also rescuing them from it. I mean, it's, it's, it's very complicated. Well. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Um, I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about that, especially from my position as a person of privilege, because there are lots of things that I can look at in my life and see as like being provided by God or answers to prayer. And I think there's sometimes there's some like proper humility in that because I'm being grateful and I'm recognizing that I have not earned my kind of place in life. But at the same time, I could easily tell the same story and say, no, that has to do with the fact that your parents were white and married and educated. Like it has Mm -hmm. nothing to do with God. And it's, and it's hard to actually kind of untangle those threads and maybe I'm not supposed to be able to. Uh, But I do at the same time, one of the ways that I found that cut through some of those questions of like, is it privilege? Is it providence? Is the experience of mortality Um, Mm -hmm. that like facing the human limitations that you talk about both through the death of my mother-in-law and also through our daughter's disability and recognizing again, this is an area in which I do not have control. Um, but I am invited to love this. If I see cancer as a problem, if I see Down syndrome as a problem, it's certainly not one I'm fixing. Right. And I, I've been thinking about this recently because of uh, the pandemic. And there've been all these people who've said, Oh, you know, COVID-19 can strike anyone down. It's, you know, it's not some, a disease that cares about our social divisions. And it's like, but at the same time, as a person who does not need to go to a building where I work alongside other people, I have protections, right? Like as a person with enough wealth to be able to be at home, I have protections. This is all a very long lead up to saying, how do you, when we are looking at questions of suffering and mortality, I'm curious how you see both social divisions continuing to divide us 
but also whether there are ways in which understanding our mortality actually connects us as human beings. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a powerful question. What it makes me think about is the work of group of social psychologists, actually, who I mm-hmm. got to know um, in this process, have an approach called terror management theory, where they um, examine um, what are the effects of exposure to death and dying in a visceral way upon people's behavior. Mm. And it's really a lot of it comes out of the research of this book that I love published in the year that I was born, Mm. Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death, who was this fascinating agnostic Jewish scholar who was trying to come to terms with the Holocaust, who had Martin Luther King Jr. and Diedrich Bonhoeffer as his heroes and couldn't read enough Soren Kierkegaard. I mean, what a puzzle that man was. I mean, how do you put all that together? But there's a sense in which there is something about our mortality, per se, that is democratizing, or or could be, that we are all mortal creatures, no matter how much we try to, Mm -hmm. you know, deny that, um, control that. But some of how this actually functions and and works is that particularly when we're in a culture that has some distance from the everyday experience of mortality, when we get vivid experiences of it, like someone close to us dies, or it could even be a vivid experience of, you know, something really horrific like the George Floyd video or, you know, a a death like that. What these studies, and there have been over a hundred of these studies done show is that as just as human beings, we tend to perceive a threat and go with our tribe. So mm-hmm. we tend to, mm-hmm. the sociologists talk about it as a sort of a tightening of the worldview. So whoever is from my nation or my ethnic group or you know, perhaps my religion, those are the only ones who can be trusted. Outsiders are threats. And so it's just this kind of instinctive response. And so you can see and this. An in, so let me just, an instinctive yeah. response specifically to seeing death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and this close, and a close exposure to violence. But what's really interesting is that when they've done studies about people who have more everyday experiences with death or people like chaplains or funeral directors or that sort of thing, it can actually like ongoing exposure actually can lead to the opposite effect. It actually opens, can open you up in compassion. Yeah. And there have been, I don't think enough studies, but there have been some studies that even prayer, like meditative forms of prayer, I think is particularly what have, has been studied, can also have this capacity hmm. to be both, it's, it's, it's not like you're accepting of death in the sense that death is no longer an enemy, but right. it, it allows you to move out in compassion toward, toward others. And so I find it helpful just to even be aware of that. I mean, as I've observed in the pandemic, how much we actually expose ourselves to the reality of what is taking place in terms of the dying has dramatically changed 
you know, in various parts of the times of the pandemic. So, you know, mm. early on, there was um, a lot of news coverage and exposure. And then there's, you know, other political things that come yep. up. And then, you know, the whole pandemic becomes politicized about whether right. to wear masks or not. And I think whenever life and death issues matter, and so they do have political consequences, but I get, a death is also a mystery mm. that we're never going to get our minds and hearts completely around. So I do get nervous when deaths are sort of simply politicized mm. in, 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 a, in a flat sense. Well, no, I think it's really interesting because essentially what you're saying is there are some aspects of like violent or traumatic suffering and death that only make us want to kind of close in on ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's other more of this just like ordinary human experience that can really connect us to one another. So there's a both and, which I think comes up so much in your book, that death in a Christian perspective is both a foe to be mm -hmm. conquered and overcome and a friend to be welcomed and understood. And I think there are many of those tensions there. I also, for me, I've been thinking about, I actually did a... Um, like a Zoom video call with an English teacher who was not a Christian and said, you know, one of the ways I related to your book was in this experience of mortality and recognizing that what I understand that makes us human is that we're all going to die. And he referenced Homer and he referenced Shakespeare and just this sense of like, we all have the same amount of land we're going to take up when our bones go into the grave. Uh -huh. And I was like, yes, that is true. But I also think we're connected in our capacity to give and receive love. Like it's not just about our mortality yeah, in terms yeah. of being connected as humans, but for me, recognizing that common human limitations, common experience of neediness and vulnerability, even though I have not personally faced my imminent death or have not faced personal um, experience with disability in my own body because of the people around me who I've loved, what that's done is it's actually opened me up to love. Yeah, And yeah. I do think that's what I'm hearing from you in terms of the experience of chaplains. That's what I'm reading in your own book mm -hmm, and in mm -hmm. choosing to bring your kids to the nursing home and yeah, yeah. kind of embrace the fullness of what it means to be human death is a limit and we can't go beyond it, at least in our minds on our own. But at the same time, it's a limit that relates to other limits that we have in our bodies. I mean, you even write about sleep as this kind of mini death where we just surrender mm -hmm. our bodies to something and we're not even quite sure what it is. I mean, there are things that are mm -hmm. happening physically while we're asleep, but it's a fascinating thing that we do every single day. And there's kind of a, a sense mini in which, death. Yeah. yeah, it's a mini death that relates. And um, and how much do we fight against that sleep? And yet when we get it, there's a sense of acknowledging our creatureliness that can le be life-giving. Well, I have one final question. There was this um, place in the book where you write, you're writing about a passage from Hebrews and you wrote, Hebrews does not say that Christians should no longer fear death because of Christ. No, our deliverance is from slavery to death's fear. Stated differently, the goal of the Christian life is not eliminating the fear of death, but removing death from its throne. I love that. I think that's so helpful. But I would love to just ask you to speak about what possibilities open up when we are free from slavery to the fear of death. And either, I mean, how might we do that? How has that played out in your life? I mean, you can take it wherever you want, but just I'm thinking about that difference between being enslaved to fear 
mm-hmm. and being aware and fearful, but not um, letting death be on the throne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Some of the reason I even framed it that way is that I do uh, in Christian circles sometimes get uh, the idea that well we shouldn't be afraid of death at all, and I don't think I don't think that's actually either biblical teaching or likely to happen <laughs> really honestly for any of yeah. us um and so it sets up this ideal that makes people shameful when mm. they grieve deeply and you know i remember a person in my church just heaving with tears it was the anniversary it would have been his like 56th anniversary and his mm. his wife had died the year before and he said i know i shouldn't be crying because everybody tells me she's in a better place right but i just want her here hmm. you know and so there's there is of course we should um have a certain fear of death but when fear of death is on the throne then self protection mm-hmm. becomes the central priority. It's yeah. kind of like, as I noted with those studies, right. exposed to, you know, death, oh, this could happen to you. You pull in rather than reach yeah. out in, in, in compassion. And so I think some of what it looks like is being willing to take risks, knowing that they are risks mm. and to be both aware of you know, even if it's not a life-threatening act, aware that this could damage my reputation, this could mm. damage my, you know, earthly fortress, for, fortunes, but this is what the love of God and neighbor is calling me to. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, there's, there's a kind of slavery to self-protection mm. that we can easily slip into, and particularly when we have in a in a middle class culture with cell phones and our schedules up to us and it, it can just make us feel like we're master of the universe right when we're just not <laughs> but as long as we're under that illusion we don't really get out of a self protection zone and so i think when we are willing to just honestly say i'm dying i'm not going to live forever mm-hmm. and 50 100 years from now Nobody's going to remember who I am, most likely. That most they might know my name. There's actually something very freeing about that. Like, we talk about it freeing us to do small things because we're small people, but not to see them as insignificant, but just right. to add, like, do the small act of love that is a risk because it's connecting you to someone else, it's extending yourself, it's on some even minimal level, sacrificing whether it's time or money or energy or or whatever it might be. But yeah, I, I also wrote down a different another quote. You, in light of genuine Christian hope, a daily embrace of our mortality can refresh our parched souls, freeing us to generously love rather than cling to methods of self-preservation. And I so want that, right? To instead of clinging and insulating and isolating, to open my life, my hands, my heart, um, but recognizing that that makes me vulnerable. And yeah. so that means I'm open to love. And it also means I'm open, I think, to uh, to more pain. Yeah. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us, right? <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Was to say, in opening myself to humanity, and to the love that I have for you all, I'm also exposing myself to the pain 
that comes with that. And yet we're invited to go right there with him and experience both that suffering and uh, dying and rising. And in a sense, I think the Apostle Paul sees that his pioneering of that as a source of hope because in in union with him, even our mortal body is wasting away. Second Corinthians four has been become a really important passage just for me spiritually in the, in the writing this where, you know, we carry death in our bodies, Mm -hmm. but it's, we're not doing anything heroic in a sense. We're just, it's, it's, it's our union with Christ who has gone before us that we're called to, to live into. And so it's this strange paradox because it's when we live into that union and the self-giving love within that, which is the opposite of clinging to this life now, or even just like, I'm going to change the world forever Mm. myself and I'm the hero. When we live into that union with Christ, that's often when our lives actually have the most significance as well. Yeah. And I think the, um, the hope that we have both in not having to depend upon ourselves to fix it all, save it all and, you know, live forever, but also in connecting to the work that God is doing both to bring the temple, to bring heaven Mm -hmm. to our experience here and now, but also this greater promise of one day living in that, the fullness of the presence of God. When that becomes our animating hope, uh, there's both this sense of like pulling the future into the present moment, but also longing for that future, which is where, you know, death becomes a passage. And again, not in some Pollyanna, it's all, mm-hmm. you know, for the good way, but but there is some reality. There's certainly a lot of hope on the other side of that. Yeah, yeah. One one thing I've just real briefly that I've noticed already from readers is that, um the older readers that I've had, the readers who I've had who have in their 80s, their favorite chapters are the last few chapters mm-hmm. <laughs> that are, you know, talking about this very bodily expectation of the world to come. Yeah. Um, and younger readers actually tend to be more attracted to and want to process more some of the earlier earlier chapters. But I I really do think that we shouldn't be shy about just having an astonishing hope for mm. the age to come. And I think that makes our witness very powerful right now when embraced in the right sort of way. It's not just, oh, I have a ticket to heaven and I'm just going right. to live my own life. Yes. But it's, you know, the same heaven, the same presence of God that we've been aching for from the pit and in our whole pilgrimage, this one centered in Jesus is, you know, that will be the wide and spacious land, so to speak, of our rejoicing and dwelling and rest. Mm. I think that is a good place to uh, call this conversation to a close. Thank you for that. Um, I love the idea of an astonishing hope. Uh, for the world to come. And I am really grateful for the work that you've done to bring all of these thoughts and to weave together um, really good theological study and reflection along with these very um, personal experiences of your own 
life as well as the lives of these other people who you've gotten to know. So thank you for that. Thanks so much, AJ. It's great to chat with you. Thanks so much for listening to Love is Stronger Than Fear. Again, Todd is the author of The End of the Christian Life, recently published by Brazos. It's a great book. We will link to it in the show notes. And as always, do you get tired of hearing me say this? Does anyone even listen to the outro of this podcast? Because if I'm honest, I skip the outros when I listen to podcasts regularly. But anyway, if you are listening, I will say again that I would love for you to share this episode, to subscribe to this podcast so you'll get next week's awesome conversation. And of course, to give it a rating or a review wherever you find your podcast so that even more people can benefit from knowing about this host of great people who have wonderful things to say. I also want to thank our co-host, Breaking Ground, which has a wonderful podcast of its own, as well as articles and videos that reflect from a Christian perspective on how to think about the past, understand the present, and explore redemptive possibilities for the future. You can find more about that at breakingground.us. I'm also very thankful to Jake Hansen for editing this podcast, to Amber Beery, my social media coordinator, and to all of you who listen. I always end this way, but I'm going to say it again because I so want this to be true for me and for you. As you go into your day today, I hope and pray that you will carry with you the peace that comes from believing that love is stronger than fear.